welcome to episode 23 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and want to help other people find it so that they can like it too, best way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you just want to be notified when new episodes are released, or if you want to have a conversation with us online, best way to do that is on Twitter. Follow us at tech underscore done underscore right. To learn about past episodes or leave comments, find us online at techdonright.io. We really look forward to hearing from you. This is a live recording of a panel session that we did on hiring developers, both in general and specifically for the particular needs of technical companies in the healthcare space. On the panel with me were Mark Yoon, Director of Talent at TableXI, Liz Volosian, a strategic lead at the healthcare tech company Outcome Health, and Leah James, a branding and talent development consultant working with Human Predictions, a recruiting and talent company. The panel was recorded on October 12th, 2017 at the offices of Matter in Chicago. We talk about how to identify and hire not just individual developers, but entire teams, how to balance the specific expertise of healthcare with general development talent. Uh, we took a lot of audience questions. The conversation covers a lot of ground on hiring and retention practices, and I hope you like it. Um, this was a live recording, so I apologize in advance for any audio issues, but I hope you enjoy the discussion. And here we go with our panel. Hi, everybody. Uh, hi, I'm Noel Rappin from TableXI and also the Tech Done Right podcast, uh, which is why we have all the microphones and cables here. Uh, we're going to do a panel on hiring for developers, and I want to start with having everybody just introduce themselves and explain why they are here. So you can start, Mark. I'm Mark Yoon. I'm from TableXI. I'm our director of talent. Uh, I have a background in healthcare at uh, Northwestern Medicine. I was a developer and designer there. And um, glad to be here. I'm Leah James, and I work with Human Predictions, which is a software that predicts when people in the software industry are going to leave their jobs. My background is working with developers and technical folks on navigating their career paths, and sometimes that's into healthcare. Hi, I'm uh, Liz Velogen. I'm currently with Outcome Health, and uh, I work with strategically growing their teams from a talent acquisition standpoint. I built their product engineering team from the ground up, but I've been helping engineering teams grow in Chicago for over 13 years, which a lot of them did involve some sort of organization that had the word health stuck to it. Also happy to be here. Great. And uh, I also do a lot of developer interviewing and planning for developer teams and, and retention and, and all of that, all that stuff. So... What I thought we'd talk about here, first of all, we're talking about this in sort of two phases. One is we're talking uh, generically about hiring developers and then also what is uh, specific about healthcare, what you need to look for, what skills, what experience you need to look for. So I'm going to start with like, what do you guys think is important when you're recruiting developers to create a process that is, first of all, allows you to identify as skilled developers and secondly, is also somewhat fair and humane to the people who are interviewing. What's one thing that you can do to help differentiate a skilled developer from a, a, an unskilled developer in an interview process? What do you do? What do you look for? I think there's a lot of attempts to um, come up with, I'd say, segments or exercises, that things like whiteboarding, interviews that ask the perfect questions. I think that that approach maybe isn't going to be as helpful as simply getting as close as you can to the real work. So that might mean putting people in, in situations. I, you can't necessarily put them in the exact work situation because that would take you know weeks or months. But if you have a short hour with somebody, uh, we have a game that we play with um, folks that 
you essentially are building a project from the ground up in half an hour with a coworker, with a client. We happen to do it with Legos. And it doesn't matter that it's not with software. We get a chance to force them to pivot and deal with changes, ask questions, deal with requirements. All those things are exactly the skills that we're looking for in our business. We sometimes have people complete a piece of software, a small piece of software on their own, but then we spend time reviewing it with them and pairing two other activities that's involved in most of our day-to-day work. So getting as close to the work as possible um, in a simulated way, I'd say, is a, a good place to start. I'll add on to that. And it does depend where you are in the maturity of your product, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to hiring developers in healthcare, if you are in the early stages of your product development, it's really important to hire smart generalists that have the ability to potentially switch gears because you may start off wanting to build your product with a particular stack and realize as you collect more data on what your product needs to become that there's actually a shift that needs to occur. And it's not advised to go out and get a bunch of new recruiters or excuse me, new developers that can develop for that because they have assimilated a lot of IP when it comes to your customer and who you're building this product for. So when we started out at Outcome Health, which at the time was Context Media, we build end-to-end Android devices and actually build the first Android team off of C++ embedded Linux guys that came out of WMS Gaming. And it worked really well in the concept of we wanted to build media players that would be put into healthcare that helped change behavior in healthcare. So part of our process was also identifying sort of these soft skills on top of being able to solve for a variety of different problems and figure it out if they didn't necessarily have the experience. We also wanted to identify someone that had the level of empathy to understand that technology was a means to an end to the problem that you're trying to solve. Because when it comes to healthcare, it may not have to be the most complex or sexiest piece of engineering. It has to solve for the problem at hand. And so you find that there's a lot of engineers that really do enjoy working on highly technical products as their way to kind of like hide from the world, right? And then there are engineers that we found that that is their way of engaging with the world and connecting with the world. And they really want to solve for a problem that matters. And so part of our interview process, in addition to whiteboarding and just giving them things to sort of figure out how their thought process worked, also involved, why is it that they do what they do? And what is it about what you're building that they have a connection with? Because that empathy is so important when building healthcare products. I love that you talk about empathy and problem solving, because I think that's a really key piece for hiring any developer to think about how do they solve problems and how do they attack problems, but also making sure that the developers on your team already are part of the process of interviewing as well. Plenty of teams will separate recruiters from developers, but the more that you have those recruiters and technical folks integrated, the better your process will be because you know what you're looking for a little bit better and you have a a standard of expectations of what level um, a person is technically based on what the people on your team are already answering or how they would answer it. So if you have someone who's junior or senior on the team, they may approach a question very differently. And if you have those technical folks involved in that interview process, they can identify where the person is and what capacity they could build. I think on. it's it's important and a little bit dangerous to have the people who you, who the team's going to who the new recruits going to be working with in the interview process. 
Like it's important to have those people get a chance to weigh in. And yet also you run the risk of hiring a bunch of people that are just like the people sure. that, that you already have. So you, you need to strike that balance. One thing you said that I thought was really important is that is about generalists versus specialists. And I think that like there's a lot of advice tactically about what to do in a technical interview. Do you whiteboard? No, you probably shouldn't. Do you ask this kind of question? And there's very little advice strategically, like when do we need to hire a new person? When do we hire a generalist versus a specialist? And that stuff is critically important to how you build a team and not just hire like a group of individual people. I think that that advice about starting off with generalists is a really good idea. I think small companies uh, favor generalists. Big companies tend to favor specialists. I like that you're talking about the, the entire team. Um, especially because when a lot of developers are looking for other developers, they're looking for culture fit. And I think at least in our hiring process, we're trying to direct people to look for a culture ad. What diverse perspective, what interesting new thing are you bringing to our team rather than how are you just fitting in with everybody else? Uh, especially in healthcare, yeah. you need to represent as many of your end users as possible and your end users aren't homogenous. Yeah. Um, so very much like looking to to round out a team with different roles, different skills, different perspectives versus just, you know, somebody who works and looks and thinks like me. So when you do involve developers, then they need to be sort of directed towards that goal versus looking for the same. First of all, what are some of the specific things you do in your process to try to identify some other things that you do in your process to identify people who are going to be culture ads? And what kind of training and support do you give to the people who are doing the interviews? Like how do you prep them to look for the kinds of things that you need? So we work with teams to, one, to set expectations for where are the gaps in whatever it is that you're building. And Lizzie talked about where are you in the product um, where are you in the product build? And so identifying where the gaps are for the skills that you need, but then also making sure that everyone's gone through a special training for how to talk about um, the company, how to like, what are the things that you're looking for in a sense of the culture ad and the diversity of thought um, so that there aren't those mistakes in hiring everyone that's like you. So we go through a training process with companies on that based on, do you have someone from the different teams that are going to be interacting with this person? Or do you have people that can represent the different thoughts of diversity within your team as well so that they get an opportunity to experience like what are the different types of people that are on the team and what are the, their different approaches as well for solving a problem or for um, working with the software or hardware that you're working on. In addition to if you have people that are also working more closely with the end user, that's also helpful to be thinking about in including in that in that interview process so that they get exposure to that as well. And you can identify if that empathy is there for the end user, if the empathy is there for the piece of software that they're going to be developing. Yeah, that's I like that you mentioned that. So that's a piece of process that we baked into really any interview process at mm -hmm. Outcome Health, but specifically with engineering, we call it, it's a gut check round. And so it's it's had a lot of variations of names. I think at this point it's called a activator ambassador. Don't make fun of us. Uh, but the, the, the spirit of it is what, it was an independent culture ambassador. It was an independent gut check that uh, belonged to a team outside of engineering. 
And the importance with that is being able to identify a few things, um, especially considering the size of your company, right? And, and the level of interaction that your engineering team needs to have with the people that are on the front lines speaking and listening to your users, which in many cases can be patients. And so with the goal of the Activator Ambassador, we wanted to make sure that this person had the ability to collaborate with people that were not like them, right? The people that were not specifically in engineering. And even if they weren't in a position where they were going to be owning that liaison into these other teams, I think being able to have a very human connection at that point to why are we here? Why are we building this? Who are we building this for? Why does it matter? So that was one thing. And it also was a person that could possibly point out if we were hiring for, we need this person versus do they elevate us? I love that that you pointed that out, Mark. Um, Does this person elevate the existing team and how? Because you can very much fall into the trap, especially with engineering hiring, that it's not a, a readily available market. You can fall into the trap of, this person's good enough. Mm -hmm. And that is, yes, a quick win and a quick add, but it's detrimental to the success that you're trying to build towards. The really important questions to sort of ask um, the team, even when you start off your process, is having that conversation about why are you here? You know, I, I, when I was consulting, I used to have this conversation with a bunch of engineering leaders before we started any search. And I'd say, okay, why would someone come work here? Oh, we have a great culture. Great. What's your culture? Oh, we have jeans and a ping pong table. I'm like, you are so in trouble. That is not your culture. And, and it's such an overused words. And I think, you know, thinking about things in terms of your identity and your non-negotiables does help with the sort of avoiding the halo effect and bringing diversity. So one of the things that I think works for us in hiring is that it's really apparent to the people that come in to interview with us that our existing team really cares about the things that they build and the community that they build at Table XI. And that comes across in a lot of small ways as we deal with a prospective interviewee. And it also comes across when we are finally evaluating it. In, in our process, an interviewee, a candidate talks to as many as 10 different Table XI employees, and the end of the process is all of them gathering in a room to make a final decision. And it's very much like a jury. Like You can really hang it with one person who had a bad feeling. That's one of the things that protects us from just good enough, because we have a couple people who will never let anybody pass who they feel is just good enough. So that kind of care on the part of the people doing the work and making the decision helps a great deal. I like what you were saying, though, the clarity about um, what you're looking for. I think the clearer and more consistent you can be in the interview process and, and even in the um, evaluation. I mean, we're, we're always evolving our, our process. So, you know, starting to use the same exact evaluation for each of the interview segments and consistent scoring, consistent people. It helps a lot, and it helps to get the group who's doing the interviewing together and not just train, but come back together and you know, talk about best practices and how to... Um, yeah, we, we actually also, another thing that we do, we really strongly believe in transparency to the candidate, telling them exactly what all the steps are going to be, exactly what they're going to be evaluated on, trying not to have surprises. And we also... Uh, we continually get feedback. We are probably a little too easy to give feedback to candidates that, that we choose not to hire. Um, a lot of times we hire, we look at people who this is their first or second technical interview and they're really hungry for 
a sense of how they come across and, and what they can work on. And we also ask them what about our process? Was there something we could have done to make you feel more at ease? It's, it's a weird kind of awkward conversation, but we do learn valuable things about our own process. One of the things I want to push on that you talked about, Noel, was um, having 10 people in a room or however many people in a room to really talk about what went well. And it could be hung on like one person to some extent that doesn't let someone through. But it's more than just like a gut feeling of is this person right or not? And I like that you said that you're starting to have more more standardized processes so that people are going through the same types of interview process. But it's also asking that question of why why do you have a bad feeling about that person? Or why do you think this person isn't going to add to our culture? Or why do you think that this candidate isn't the right fit for our team? Because then when you ask that why, you can dig a little bit more into what the reason is behind maybe that isn't the fit. Because that's where you can really start to check biases. And that's where you can check for maybe the person interviewing was have a, having a bad day. Maybe there was one little thing that triggered them that had nothing to do with the company because we're all human. We're all going through this process as humans and there are going to be little mistakes like that. So if you have that double check and you have the the work of the team who is pushing you to always be able to justify where you stand in the process, I think that makes a big difference in the interview process so that you're hiring the right people. I agree because I think once you start digging to the why, mm-hmm. um, you'll get an answer and realize that that might be a con, right? And I think right. pushing the team to really identify pros and cons, because often what can happen, especially when they're excited about someone, is everyone's like, yes, love them. And that's not a well-rounded evaluation. Yeah. You can't just say they're great, hire them. You have to also equally do your job as an interview to say, well, what will they have challenges with, specifically within the context of our business? What don't they have? Because I don't know about you guys. I've never walked into an interview and came out saying this person has 10 out of 10. It just, it doesn't exist. And so identifying where this person may be coming in a little light on, if it's a a technical acumen piece um, or other cons is really important because then you can assess, okay, what are the pros? What are the cons? And do the pros outweigh the cons? Because when you dig into someone that says no, I've often found it's like, well, you know, they just, they don't know this and I don't have time to spend with them. But you've identified someone who has an incredible aptitude for problem solving and has a strong interest in what you're building for. And that's the right investment to make, even though they may need a little more ramp up and a little bit more time to get them a stronger pace. They might be a little weaker. Are are there specific things that you recommend that people do in interviews to help identify the actual technical level of the candidate? Are there specific things that you want that make that easier to, to evaluate or, or to tell what the candidate actually knows, what their experience level is? So I think you have to start off by first defining what are the impacts and outputs of a level. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, different opinions to what constitutes a senior engineer. And it could get very... Love you, you laughing. Uh, it, it can get very biased yeah. in terms of everyone's own perspective. So one of the things that we've started doing, again, across the board, but speaking to engineering, is creating success profiles for each role that we want to hire and identifying what is the level of impact that this specific role is going to provide to the company. What are the outputs of that impact? And outputs are things that are measurable. And so you start off the process with a very clear um, expectation on if we're evaluating this person for junior, mid, or senior, 
this is this is what they should be able to deliver on. This is what they should be able to have um, a firm understanding of. And that helps you immensely when you're starting off a process to have everybody speaking a common language to what exactly the technical level will end up being. I love that you put together that process of like what the outputs are, because that's exactly what we talk to companies about is um, making sure you understand what those deliverables are. So I don't have much to add to that other than I love that you're doing that because it's so important to know what is a real junior, mid-level, and senior in your company, because then that also gives someone a clear understanding of how they elevate themselves within your company once they're hired, and that sets the expectations of what's to come as they're evolving in your company. I think that's great. <laughs> Two thumbs up. That's awesome. Clarity of levels um, helps everybody, not just candidates. So yeah, right on. And then, when, so when you have the when you have the candidate in the room, and you're trying to assess, you you, you say like. We're looking for somebody who is a mid-level. We expect them to have a certain kind of product impact. We expect them, in our case, we would expect them to be able to work independently on features, but not on entire applications. I think that's probably the quickest way for me to explain it. Are you asking whether the person has previous expertise? Are you looking for you know uh, specific types of knowledge? Like, what kinds of things do you do to tease out what kind of impact the person's had in previous work? And how important is it that they've had that kind of impact in previous work? So I'm a big proponent for or supporter of transferable skills. And so I think it's really important not always to say like, what have you done or what what has your impact been, but how would you impact this? To give them the opportunity to be able to apply what they've done. I mean, you should dig into what they've done just to understand where they are in an expertise level. But I think it's really important to understand how they can adapt what they've done into what they can do for your company um, and what they can do for the impact level that they need to within your company. And if they can connect those dots for you, I think that says a lot and how they'll be able to be able to move around within your company or how they'll be able to impact you in a, in a bigger way. Um, but that doesn't speak specifically to mid-level. I mean, I could say, you know, the thing that you're looking for when you when you're talking about mid-level is work independently on features. So then I'm looking more for the work independently part. So I'll probably say if it's in a technical situation, I'll try and push them to the end of their knowledge. And then I want them to say, I don't know. And then I want them to Google it in front of me. <laughs> um, because I, I actually, I, I want them to engage in the, the processes that they'll go through when they, when they do get to a place where they don't know. I want them to ask for help, to work well with others, to admit that they don't know, not to have any... If you find somebody who can't, who is unwilling to say, I don't know in an interview, which is a perfectly understandable thing, but it's definitely like a a, a problem sign. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a litmus test for me. But yeah, I would would look more for the precursors to, to working independently. So being able to figure out where to look, who to ask, if they don't know something, I ask them, you know, tell me a story about a time when you didn't know something. How did you figure it out? That tells me a lot more about a candidate's ability to work independently than necessarily the, the quality of the projects that they're allowed to show me. Um, sometimes they're not allowed to show me their projects. So, you know, I, I look very much more for that independence. And also the ability to kind of, at, at the mid-level, you do want them to be there for available to someone who's younger in their career. And so, you know, works, put them in a situation where they do need to work with another person and, and bring in their opinion and participate in, in more than, more than just individual uh, input. I think it starts to become really important at the, at the mid level. 
one thing I do a lot of initial screening of interviews, like the, the first contact with table XI. And I think that often a lot of the people that I do these interviews with are baffled because I don't do super technical. I don't ask technical jeopardy kind of trivia questions. Um, but one thing that I'm really looking for is like an awareness of a larger context that they develop in. One of the ways that I find that's really good at, at teasing that out is when I give the person an opportunity to ask questions, the level of questions that they ask is often very telling in terms of how they see their job, what they see, the kinds of things that they're going to do, whether they're asking a question like, hey, what text editor does everybody use here? Or whether they're asking a question like, what do I have to do to be successful in this role? Or why are you filling this position? Or how do you make money? Or how do teams work? You know, what do successful teams look like here? There's almost like a hierarchy of somebody who is very hyper focused on their keyboard work uh, versus somebody who like habitually the most important thing for them for them to learn about the company is the kind of thing that they would find out if they looked up and looked around and, and, and got a sense of what everybody else was doing. And I find that the, the people who are eager to learn that kind of context tend to be more successful with us at our team. Yeah. And I mean, at each, each level, like you're looking for a different sort of context or awareness. So like at the entry level, you really want people who are focused on like how to do it. At the mid level, you're focused on like deciding what to do and having the awareness of what to do. And then at the senior level, you're looking more like, why? Why are you doing it? So that even that like just gives you a little bit of a framework for, you know, to draw some clarity around what a person should be thinking about day to day. Taking it back a step to very shortlist people for interviews. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you have a written job spec. So the, the, the question, yeah. yeah okay. So it's, I'm assuming you, you do that. Yes. And then... What's most important on a resume would it be what a reputation for firms they work for, the coding they've done, or their qualifications, or even their you know, hobbies or something? What's the, before you get them to this? Right. So the question is, what do we do to funnel people through from an initial resume based on our job specification? Yeah. I can tell you what I look at because I do a lot of, that's a lot of what I do in our process. In a lot of cases, I can't really look at previous work because a lot of times we're interviewing people who have no previous experience. Uh, so that makes it even harder. I'm looking for a sense that of what they have done. So I'm very happy to see things like I have one year of experience in this programming language or I have uh, worked on this kind of project. I'm looking for, I don't really get a whole lot out of resumes, honestly. Like I, I, I get a sense of like very roughly how much experience that they have. Uh, I get a sense of whether they are, they seem like they're being transparent about the level of experience that they have or whether it seems like they're trying to hide that they have no experience, which I'd rather just like, know. As part of our initial process, we also ask a couple of questions about, you know, just a couple of open-ended questions What's something that you're really proud of? Uh, what's important for you to learn in the next six weeks, six months? Sorry. And I take the answers to those really seriously as a way for somebody who doesn't necessarily have experience on their resume to get my attention by being able to express their, again, like awareness of a larger context or enthusiasm or just some knowledge that is hard to get across in a traditional resume. I don't know. What do you guys? I very passionate about the subject of resumes. But I actually want to pat on something that you were talking about in regards to this idea of experience that people have had. I think when I look at a resume, 
the obvious thing to try to pair qualifications to are, well, have they done things that we are currently attempting to do? Right. Sounds very simple, but that's that's one way to pair it. Um, other things that obviously I look at is the tenure and not from a sense of loyalty, though that is important. I consider whether someone is more senior than not the tenures that they have on projects on companies, because it's a difference between someone having been a part of a small phase and only understanding components versus having seen an end to end process and understanding all the pieces as they relate to a whole, right? That with things that will constitute actual seniority for me. But um, experience is, is interesting because experience and your resume really should just be what gets you into the door. Once they're in the door, you have to figure out what is your best process of testing this person per what you need them to build for. You need to test whether this person is going to be successful within the context of the problems that you're trying to solve for, because that is actually the true identifier to whether someone's going to be able to come in and be successful. Um, and I say this because I think a lot of people get really uh, jazzed and excited when they see like a Google or a Facebook or someone that came out of a prestige tech organization. But that doesn't mean that they have the ability to have the level of empathy that they need for your users to problem solve the way that your team needs them to and solve for what you're actually trying to do. So they might be a great candidate but not necessarily a great candidate for you and within the context of your business. Does the resume do much for you at the entry level? At the entry level, you know, you're getting into a lot of soft skills, right? Because yeah. I think, listen, I think if you have no professional experience, well, what else have you done? Right. Or do you have, I love seeing projects. I love seeing um, involvement. I love seeing something that says, listen, I may not have gotten up to the plate to bat, but I've trained, right? And I've done all these other things to get ready for it. And when you talk about someone that is entry level, it really does come down to some of the things that Noel was talking about, about, you know, does this person, one, have an internal locus of control? I think that's an incredibly important character trait for anyone that you're hiring, because it talks to the level of ownership that they're going to have to do whatever possible to solve for what you need them to solve for. Does this person have a growth mindset? You know, are they always thinking about how to solve, how to improve for something? And these are things that you can ask about um, in regards to just things that they've done in life. You know, I love asking people, what's the, the riskiest thing they've ever done? Just to see, one, do they have a vulnerability to, to talking about something that might have actually been a really stupid decision, right? But it worked out and ended up being risky. And also, does this person um, have the ability to take a shot at something and not be afraid of being wrong at it? Because those are those are the kind of character traits when you're talking about entry level that you want to make sure that you're testing for. Two things that get my attention on an entry level resume in particular. One is past experience that suggests a transferable soft skill. A lot of times people who are job switchers are kind of running from their past experience because they didn't like it. That's why they're going into tech in the first place. But a lot of times they have experience, they were project managers or they were some kind of contractor or they were a teacher or something that shows a very high possibility of having a soft skill that's transferable into our space. And that gets my attention. The second one's a little bit trickier, but if the entry-level person has found a way to build something for somebody else, not just a side project, but a side project where they didn't own the requirements and had to conform to somebody else's view, 
uh, that gets my attention. First of all, because they've sought it out. And secondly, because the biggest gap for me between a boot camp or a CS degree and actual project work is that kind of not choosing the work that you're doing on a like moment by moment basis and having to conform to somebody else's understanding of what business value is. So if somebody shows either of those things on an entry level resume, that gets my attention. I want to add on to that. For me, I really uh, strongly support that people who are doing resumes, they're thinking outside of the box and they're pushing beyond just the resume um, because resumes really don't tell the full story. It's really hard on, on one piece of paper to say exactly what you've done and, and why you're right for a position and also to make sure that it's tailored to every single company that you're applying for. But push beyond that and how can you demonstrate your skills through project work, whether it's commits on GitHub or trying to be committing to open source projects, even if you don't get merged into that project, being able to show that you're working towards something that's bigger than you and bigger than your ideas is really important. But also, I want to just acknowledge the fact that we're in a market where in software specifically, getting a whole bunch of resumes for applications isn't always as realistic as like few years ago, like when, when the market was just crazy. So right now you're thinking about like recruiting and how do you go out and how do you pull in those people? How do you make sure that you are putting yourself out there as a company or as an organization to find the right people as well? Because developers have a lot of choices. They can go in a lot of different directions. And oftentimes the people that are applying to certain organizations, not every organization, if you're like Facebook or Google or like a really fancy company, sure, you're getting a lot of resumes. But if you're a company that maybe a lot of people don't know about, or maybe they're not excited about your brand, then you might not be getting that flood of resumes. So how are you then going after the people that you actually want to get? And how are you attracting those people? So I would be thinking more about like what on the resume needs to stand out to me as opposed to like, what should you be looking for in someone in order to recruit them and pull them into your organization? I love that you said that. And that's kind of where my curiosity lies is how are you guys getting talent and how are you being proactive? Even when you don't have battle things, how are you guys pulling in that talent? What organizations are you a part of that we can take away from? So the question is, sorry, I'm repeating the question because you're probably not getting picked up on the microphone. Uh, the question is, how can, what are we doing to recruit talent? What organizations are we, uh, being a part of to get resumes into our, our, our door? I'd say we've actually had a lot of, uh, success with events. And that's everything from hosting events to participating in relevant events. Um, local organizations. Uh, so one example is uh, the Anita Borg Institute in Chicago building relationships with uh, coding boot camps, especially those that have scholarships or, or, or support for, for developers who may not you know, be able to afford the full, the full fee right up front. We've had the most success, the best qualified candidates, the best culture ads. Um, when they walk across our threshold, um, we spend some time with them. We usually make sure to feed them. Really important. And, and when we really engage person to person, that's where we, that's where we get the most qualified candidates. Uh, probably a much higher success rate than maybe, maybe an order of magnitude greater than resumes. Yeah. I think, um, to what you're saying is getting an opportunity to get in front of people and tell your story. Out of curiosity, how many people here work for a health related product or, or company? So I also want to give you some self-assurance because I think that 
there's this misconception that if you can't pay the most or if you don't have, you know, the sexiest things to work on, that you're going to lose out. I think the people that are interested in solving for healthcare problems are mainly interested in building for things that matter. And that is an incredible value add, right? There's a lot of cool technology companies out there. There's a lot of cool uh, office environments, but they're solving for first world problems. If you look at Silicon Valley, which we have somewhere in our sites, uh, not, not yet, but I'm actually really excited about, you know, going out there and saying, Hey, uh, so your watermarking photos for Instagram to make as much money as possible. How would you like to build something that actually could extend or save a human being's life? And I think companies that are within health or energy conservation, immigration, I think companies that are building products that are solving for humanity have a really strong advantage right now. Because if you think about, especially if we're talking about entry level, there is a workforce, right, that is coming in even after millennial, who their economy is much different than the economy of people that were older, that their job was how they brought in money. In this day and age, you can Uber, you can Airbnb, you have a shared economy and you have different ways that you can actually support your livelihood. And what matters is going into something that changes the world, going into something that actually helps create a better place for people to live in. That is actually what is motivating a lot of the early on workforce that's out there. They want to do something that matters and they want to have a purpose. So I want to tell you right there, you have a huge advantage, but you got to get out there and you got to tell your story. I love that you took it there because that's my number one thing. Um, I've worked with over 600 job changers in the last three years that are moving into development. And I can't tell you how many of them say, I want to do something that matters. I want to work for a company that has a mission. Where it breaks down is that usually there are a lot of hoops to get into those companies whether it's an old company that is doing really great things and they haven't changed their process in many years, or um, they're not thinking about the the job changer or someone with a different background. Now I'm talking about people that are more um, entry level or mid-level, um, but those people have a place in your organization as well. And so if you're thinking about it from a standpoint of how does everyone in your company tell your mission? How does everyone tell your story? Because every single person in your company is a representation of your culture and your mission. And if someone wants to join your organization, plenty of people run into people within your organization that maybe don't know the whole story or know an old story or aren't really happy in their organization. So they can put a little bit of a red stamp on your company. So developers don't come your direction. But if you're thinking about an creating an inclusive environment and in creating a space where everyone on your team believes your mission or stands behind their mission, is excited about your mission, that's where it really makes a difference in attracting those people that want to build something that makes a difference. And I think that workforce is so huge. So many developers are doing something that's after a while, they may get a little bit bored or they may get a little checked out because it doesn't serve a purpose. When they can build something that makes a difference, they stick around a little bit longer as long as they have the other components as well. Like, are they happy within the organization? Or do they feel like they're valued? Do they feel like they have a little bit of autonomy and responsibility? And if all of those things are there, they're a little bit easier to retain, even if you're not paying them as much as like Facebook or Google, but you're giving them all the other aspects of a happy life. That makes a difference for a lot of the people that I've worked with. How do you help your developers see? I think in the hiring process, 
our company as a startup is social impact. It's really easy for me to talk about business where you're going to be doing these things where you're going to be impacting. But then once they actually start working and are coding and really into work, they see less of like, what their impact is. I think mean, that's something that we're having to remember is how do we keep showing them what they're doing is important. How, yeah, how do you show developers that their work is continues to be important? Do you take them with you on site with your Field users? Trips. Do, yeah. You, yeah. do you, you know, I think that's, it's, it sounds easy, but I think involving them with as many conversations with their users, having them see firsthand the impact that that code translates to is really important when they go back and they start pounding out a bunch at their desk. There's a great advantage to bringing developers on field trips. One is that like they see that direct impact. The other is that they start to really understand and build empathy for their user. So I had the great privilege of sitting inside of a, you know, a patient room with, you know, uh, an older gentleman and his wife with a neurologist who's, you know, poking like a little needle along the front of his leg to test his, his, uh, nerve function. I mean, that's like to be sitting in a room with a, with a patient and a provider is just, it's a great privilege. And it, it put my, you know, whatever research program that I was working on in perspective. Same thing, like go out and spend some time at a, a with a tree farmer and really understand that when we're talking about trees, we're talking about these big things that are like, you know, need to be watered and sitting on top of the ground and, and they're in a big yard and they need to be moved by forklifts. When you see what, what, what is actually happening on the ground, it gives you a completely different perspective of what you're doing, helps you make the right solutions to the problem as well as find meaning in it. So at the beginning of every project, I push really hard. Can we get on site? Yes, there are privacy concerns. Yes, we have to pass through these hoops but it's absolutely worth it because actually when I look back on my jobs, those are the things that I remember the most, not so much, you know, the program. There's a company in Boston that um, doesn't pay the most for their developers that like doesn't have a ton of funding, but the people that they have, they keep for a really long time because what they're doing is they're developing vaccines and getting vaccines to countries that don't have access to healthcare. And their developers actually get to go spend a month in those countries and get to see the people that they're helping and get to interact with them and get to um, be part of their community. And while that's a really hard one to accomplish and actually be able to do and afford to send your team out there to see the impact of it, everyone that I know that works at that company really stands behind their mission because they get to actually see the results of what they're building and what they're coding. And I think that's so important is to get them out from behind the computer screen and see the impact. It, it makes such a difference. Another startup question. How would you give advice for a little earlier stage when you think about you know, not rounding out the team? Like for us, we're really early stage and we have a ton of subject matter expertise expertise, how do we, so with all the options from finding the technical co-founder to, um, you know, to, to sort of outsourcing, how do you, how do you guys, what advice do you give for someone like me uh, in, in developing sort of the initial build? So the question is, what do you do to build up your initial team at a startup, a healthcare startup? So you have subject matter experts and you're looking for technology. So we, we have a, yeah, right. Yeah. We know what we want to build, but, but we can't we can't code it ourselves. Do you have anyone technical on your team right now? No. No. Okay. I think there are there are a couple paths. One of them's gonna maybe sound like, you know, I'm stacking the deck in favor of what I do, but uh, it's <laughs> it's 
uh, I would say like if you're if you're lucky, you can find a, a CTO who really has like the connections to be able to hire and bring on a team that's relevant to what you're doing. Another option is to find uh, a tech partner, and that's a mature firm that is able to recruit and keep talent that um, you're not able to at this stage. And you're able to get them to help take some risk out of your product, build it up in a way that isn't just slapped together and needs to be scrapped, and then have uh, make sure that that tech partner is willing to help you recruit and build your team. Right. It's expensive. Both of those options are expensive, but they're absolutely worth it because uh, what you're losing in money, you're saving in time. Yeah, what we did, um, we actually partnered with a company to help us in the beginning. Um, but then we also thought about our talent brand and thinking about who, um, what technical people have had really great relationships, were really trusted in the community and would then also support us in different ways. Maybe they weren't coming on full time, but they were donating their time or they were working with us on a part time basis or contract basis to be able to contribute to our team. The difference was was that our co-founders have a lot of understanding and knowledge around the technology, so they knew a little bit more about what they were looking for, but also partnering with the companies that we've partnered with made a really big difference because they also were able to influence what technical pieces we needed or what gaps we had technically when we were building out our product. I agree. And adding on to that, I think you also have to have a really honest discussion to as you look at whatever option, right? And if it is building an in-house team, what you're willing to give up on because you're not going to be able to get everything and you don't necessarily need someone that has everything. I think a question that comes up often with health tech is, do you necessarily need a background in healthcare to get in? And there's a lot of different philosophies for that. And it does depend on what specifically your product is, how scientific or technical it is Mm -hmm. specific to it. But Overall, if you're building a product that is trying to bring innovation or behavioral change into healthcare, it's actually to your advantage to not have someone that comes from that same industry because you're trying to get someone with a fresh perspective that's not looking at every reason why something wouldn't work within that environment and every reason it would. Um, And to the example I gave earlier, we had a proof of concept of building mobile tablets. And so we could have beat ourselves up trying to find Android developers for an unproven product, or we could have said, what is good enough to get this proof of concept out and see if this is actually even the right thing for us, the right direction for us to go as a company. I'd also recommend, and this is going to be harder in a different way, is building, trying to build up a little bit of technical knowledge among your subject matter experts, if only because it's going to help your subject matter experts communicate with your technology people at some point. You're going to need if you're if you have a bunch of subject matter experts and you're hiring a bunch of technology people who aren't necessarily healthcare people, you're going to need somebody who can talk both languages and translate between them. And if you can get a subject matter person, they don't have to become a professional developer, but if you can get somebody who is willing to learn a little bit about what's possible, what's hard, what is easy, uh, and just speak the language a little bit, that's going to help your team communicate with itself. Yeah, I mean, if you need to go after FDA approval, then you need an FDA approval expert. But if you're just trying to look for people who have uh, experience with technology um, that can help you in healthcare, you know, anybody who has has tech experience and patience with large, complex systems, um, I think 
obviously our, our health system is one of the largest and most complex. Um, so, you know, the, they don't necessarily have to have that direct domain experience and uh, an outsider's perspective is important. But I would say, you know, there's, there's a different maturity level required for healthcare than for fancy, interesting, exciting new startup. You're going to be delving into that, that deep system. So. What are some of the specific healthcare? How important is it to have somebody who has healthcare experience? What are specific skills for how that healthcare technologists might have or that you might need somebody to acquire if they're coming in without a healthcare background? I think where you have an advantage with someone that does have healthcare is going back to sort of understanding the, the landscape that they're solving for and having that sort of more intimate context to why something would or would not work, right? Or would or would not, more importantly, make sense to the user or get buy-in from the user if you're trying to, to gain adoption. So I think when, when you talk about how to how to build something from the ground up, it's a it's a series of compliments, right? You can afford to bring on someone that doesn't necessarily have the healthcare experience if you have someone that can help complement them and support and guide them to the context of that um, specific, uh, if it's a workflow, right, that you're trying to, to solve for, or the specific uh, user problems that you're trying to solve for. I've had some success with uh, folks who have background in the military, in government, and in academia. Again, because they have the maturity to deal with large systems, they're not intimidated by acronym soup. You know, so that those are like maybe domain backgrounds. And then for skill set, anybody who's very interested in the human side of things, uh, anybody who's interested in user research as a developer, you know, still interested in usability, user research, People who have uh, anthropological or ethnography in their background, um, those are the people who, who are able to understand that this is technology that's serving people, serving a purpose, as you were speaking to earlier, Liz. And so anybody, anybody who has that is, I think, is well set up to be successful in, in healthcare tech. You actually took a lot of what oh, I was going to say. No, 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 Go it's ahead. good. It's totally good. Um, just to add on that, I would say um, people that have experience with complex systems, people that are open to solving things that have processes and they can't just disrupt any industry that they go into, but they have the mindset that understands or to understand that they're might be red tape with the process that you're going through, or there might be something that's a little more challenging to bring it to market. Um, do they have the patience and understanding or the interest in exploring what it takes to bring something to market or to evolve something a little bit bigger than themselves with the user research and what you spoke to. But other than that, I don't have anything to add to what you said. Also, people who have experience working in systems where they're butting up against legal or regulatory requirements. So people who might have financial experience, other kinds of privacy and security experience are also uh, seem to be pretty transferable. One of my favorite interview questions to ask uh, to get to this, uh, to like that concept of maybe maturity, is asking people their favorite thing about their last job, which is really just a setup for the second question. What was your least favorite thing about your last job? And let me tell you, it, they, they sound like relatively easy questions to answer, but they reveal a lot about how people think about their career, about how they react to issues, to problems, to complexity. Why somebody is leaving their previous job is is very telling. And their attitude towards their team, their attitude towards challenges can tell you a lot about their maturity. And obviously, this is above the entry level. But that's somewhat how I get to, you know, how will this person have patience 
for the kind of complex work that we're going to be asked to do? What do they do in the face of, of challenges is, is like a very, it's a very telling indicator. I think also gut checking for that high level of customer centricity yep. is also so important, right? So asking someone in whatever it is that they do, what defines success? And it should be a roundabout way of talking about ultimately who they serve and what the purpose of their role on the team to what they're trying to build and who they're trying to build <laughs> serves. Uh, that would be another good question to throw in the mix. I find in general in interviews, I get a lot more interesting information asking the negative question of what people don't like about something than asking what they do like about something. The, the do like answers tend to be more canned and, and a little bit more prepared. But I also like speaking of what you said, one a really common pattern is when I ask somebody if they have any questions, somebody who is changing from another technology job, often their first question will very loosely be, my current job does this terrible thing. Do you also do this terrible thing? <laughs> and that's an, another way another uh, way that you learn about what people are concerned about by what they ask about. So how do you get workforce planning around like, spikes in the business or like uh, a ramp up or initiative or something that's how do you workforce plan against staffing level changes that might come out of the blue? So everybody's kind of going, um, uh, I wish I had something clever to say about this. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's so highly dependent yeah. on the business, right? Yeah. So at TableXI, we're consultants. We, we have some clients who are seasonal. We have some who are not. And we, we definitely have the typical feast or famine. Um, we're really lucky that we have partners that we lean on. Uh, that consult with us, that, that subcontracts, um, where we're able to you know, balance out our, our workforce without lots of hiring and lots of firing, lots of hiring, lots of firing, without that seasonal um, flow to it. So that luckily is, is, uh, is not entirely my job. Um, <laughs> we, have a whole, we have a whole management team who helps sell, who helps staff, and who helps recruit, like, you know, um, uh, support teams, I guess you would say partners in it, but that's very specific to our, our business. I don't know how you do it at Outcome. So we are an 11-year-old company that still acts like a baby. <laughs> lovingly. Lovingly. We've done great things. And I say that because we are just starting to get into those conversations. We've had an organization that grew really big, really fast. And so options that we had to take a look at is, I think, one, going back to what we talked about, what are the expected outputs of everyone on the team? What is it that you need them to deliver on? And from there, when you have sort of these spikes that come up, it's evaluating, is it worth bringing on a partner? Is it worth bringing on contract health? Um, is it actually a better option to defund? Uh, another project that's being worked on because from a business perspective, this is the most important thing that we need to deliver on and it's shifted. So we're just going to put a pause on this. And I know that frustrates developers quite a bit, but I think the, the business priorities for us have really guided uh, a lot of decisions because they've been so fast moving and have shifted so rapidly. So Table XI was actually a really great help for us because sometimes you do need like a subject matter expertise uh, in there taking care of something so it's not completely defunded um, and it continues to make progress while you're taking care of the most important thing that the business needs as a whole. Yeah, there's a business decision there about whether you are more comfortable being slightly overstaffed and finding people things to do when you're not 100% at capacity or whether you are more comfortable being understaffed with the need understanding that you're going to scramble when spikes come and, and that the point of comfort there is going to be different 
for every business, but it's worth trying to think about like what you're comfortable with. Kind of reminds me of a, a restaurant in my neighborhood. This may sound like a tangent, but a restaurant in my neighborhood that closed and the sign that they put on their door said, um, we're closing because we can't afford to pay our workers um, the higher minimum wage. And what that really told me is that they did not have a resilient business. Um, if they had a, if they had a good resilient business, they should be able to pay their workers well and manage like the seasonal shifts in, in the restaurant industry. Now, you know, this is Chicago. It's a, it's a restaurant industry is tough. Uh, I certainly wouldn't make it, but I mean, you do have to, as, as a business, look at how you're making money and make sure you have that somewhat of that cushion, either to be able to hire a partner, which will obviously be more expensive than your own team, or to weather the, um, the slight, uh, we call it a beach, you know, when people, people don't have a full load of work. Yeah. You talk, I like that you talk about the comfort level because this is biased in my own perspective, but we've always believed in erring the side of, of being understaffed. Reason being, when you're overstaffed, you have way too many people doing too few things. And when you talk about retention, especially with engineering, but really this goes across the board, it is so important to make sure that you're overutilizing incredibly smart and hardworking people, because that's actually where a lot of their engagement comes from. They feel like they are adding impact in many different places, and they can use many different skills versus being siloed and pigeonholed into just taking care of this and not really having an opportunity to sort of expand their thinking elsewhere. That's why people ultimately leave. They're underutilized. Mm -hmm. Can I ask how you decide how to reward these uh, new hires, especially in small firms? I've worked with developers who you know, they're just happy with unlimited pizza and royalties <laughs> and perhaps equity, but, but at the same time, healthcare, they've got, they've got kids, they want a full salary, they want more vacation days. So, how do you, you know, so you want the talent, but at the same time, they want the reward. How do, you, how do you choose how to reward and compensate your new hires yeah. uh, in healthcare? This might sound silly, but I would ask them. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, when it comes, and you're talking about, you know, a variety of things, right? You're talking about, you know, possible benefits to offer them. Um, you know, the, the compensation, whether it's on the front end or the back end. I think really listening to, especially if you have a smaller company, what specifically is important for them at this point in their life and how you can support them to continue to deliver on the work that you need them to is a good way to start. People are different, right? There's different motivations that excite other people. Some people really like the flexibility to come into work when they want to or to work when they want to, as long as they're delivering on the things that you need. Some people like the autonomy and the ability to make some decisions or hard decisions. And some people are motivated by money or other things. But so exactly what Liz just said is what I was going to recommend, which is ask the people what, what they want out of your company. Obviously, you can't give them all the things, right? You have to think about for your business to be productive and sustainable, what can your business afford to do to share the excitement with, with your staff and keep them motivated? But it's really understanding at, at the core who your people are, helping them bring their whole selves to work so that when they do have a bad day, you're able to reward them maybe in that, that one day of like, here's some flexibility for you because I understand you and I understand that you just want to be treated like a person. And I think sometimes companies forget that. They forget that we're people. They forget that we have ups and downs. And that can impact the happiness of your developers depending on how much 
you really invest in them. It must be different here. In the UK, you then have a week later, you have these two people and they speak to each other and you say, oh, I got the royalties and the pizza and the other one says, I got 10 days, 30 days holidays. And the lawyers might be all over this and it's a contractual thing. Well, no, I don't think the, I don't think the, the the recommendation is to give different people different things within the company, but to sort of talk to the workforce in general to understand what's important. There, you, you're right that you, there are you have a limited ability to offer different things to different people, not a zero ability to offer different things to different people, but a limited ability. But I think it's important to. Yeah, we've had a couple issues at Table XI, which started with a workforce that was largely single men. And over time, they have become, you know, the, the workforce has become more diverse. And as that has happened, different kinds of benefits have become more important. Different kinds of family benefits have become more important. And the company has really listened to, I have the CEO and the chairman of the board in the audience staring at me as I say this. <laughs> so, uh, the, the company has listened. Over time, as different benefits have become more important and has, you know, changed parental leave policy or changed, um, policy on reimbursement for like childcare to attend a company event, you know, things that are not necessarily super dramatic, but indicate that the company is paying attention to what's important to the people that are there. And I think that that becomes key. We, uh, we revamped our benefits last year because we had to become a real company. It was a funny conversation where we're like, people are having children. That's never happened before, right? Yep. What's our maternity leave? I don't know. So, yeah. so we sent out a survey to every single employee and we said, this is what we plan to do. We want to, we want to revamp our package to take better care of you, your families, whatever it is that will have you feel more supported. What, matters to you. And we collected all of that. And again, you can't give them everything, but you at least have a better data point to where everyone in your company is in their life and what matters uniquely to them as a whole. And and that's that's a way to, to go about it. There are some trends, some fads, I would say, in, in compensation that I, I would speak to briefly. So um, specifically about equity, the typical way is like you, you come in, you get a chunk of equity, it vests after a while. This is a new trend of, of you know, earning equity as, as you go, growing the pie over time. Uh, I would say that that tends to incentivize and, and represent the work a little bit better. Uh, there's the concept of like uh, vacation uh, being unlimited. And one trend that we saw is that an unlimited vacation policy actually puts downward pressure amount of vacation that people take uh, because uh, there's less clarity. And so um, we've, one, one thing that we've tried is, is pairing unlimited vacation or uh, a discretional vacation with uh, a hard minimum so that we're sending a strong signal like you, you do actually need to take this time off. Obviously, work from home and flexibility is, is really enabled by, by a lot of the technology. But one thing that we noticed is, is it, it isn't a truly fulfilled promise until you orient all your work around your remote worker. So uh, just like when we're talking about web design uh, being mobile first, if you go remote first, then the person who's on the uh, video conference isn't the second-class citizen the of the meeting. Yeah. If you have robust uh, tools and you run your meetings in a way that is really inclusive of, of, of remote folks, then in some ways everybody actually benefits. 
two others. Uh, compensation. So when you're looking at, at compensation as a total amount versus compensation per hour, um, that's when you start looking at, you know, we're paying you a lot, but are you spending 80 hours here? Are you spending 40, 60? You know, it really matters. Uh, 40 versus 80 just chops your compensation in half per hour. And then I'd say something that's 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 pretty typical now is like games like ping pong, pool, foosball, Wii. You know, they, they tend to have like the effect of, of letting people, of giving people the permission to relax, but it depends. Like they can, they can also be an indicator of people disengaging from their work. It can also be an indicator of we expect you never to leave. Right, right. So, um, one benefit that, that we've chosen to offer is lunch, feeding people. We have a, we have an in-house chef and we don't have ping pong. We don't have dry cleaning. We don't have daycare, but we do feed people. We're all humans. We all do need to eat and allowing to take uh, people to take that, that pressure off their minds of like, what am I going to eat today? Is it, is it healthy? Is it good for me? Is it, you know, ready on time? Do I have to leave, you know, in time to get to this place that's really far away? Does it accommodate my dietary restrictions? Then we start to get moved into, you know, the realm of inclusivity there. So I think of all of those, you know, perks, we found that lunch actually brings a great value. We don't necessarily offer dinner, although, you know, we, we tend to have leftovers, but we don't offer <laughs> dinner because that's, again, a signal that, like, you should never leave. And we, we definitely want people to go home. So, you know, those are some, at least the trends and the fads and, you know, what's, what's new in terms of benefits and total compensation that I've seen come up and, you know, a few thoughts on it. And adding on to that, I think, when you talk about compensation, first of all, I love lunch because you're telling them it's not about working more hours it's about making the hours that you're here that much more productive. And that's actually a really great thought process to go down. What else can you provide as a resource, as a tool that make the, the same hours more highly productive? Um, when it comes to compensation, I think, and you necessarily, you see it a little bit more in bigger companies and smaller companies, but I think it's a smart move, regardless of your size, is performance strategy. Because when you talk about hours, you shouldn't really be rewarding the person that is the last person to leave every day there's a very high likelihood that that person's actually just more your, your most inefficient worker and it takes them longer than anybody else to deliver on the outputs. So I think having really clear definitions to what is meeting expectations and what are exceeding expectations and giving someone an opportunity to earn a compensation reward based off of exceeding expectations is a really good strategy to also have. And it, um, it moves away from how many hours did you contribute to what was the impact that you contributed, the lift that you added to this organization. When asked, I tell uh, employees who are about to go to startups to value options and things like that as zero uh, because they're basically like buying lottery tickets. Um, and that has served me pretty well in my career in terms of how I think about compensation that comes from uh, small companies that are trying to pay me in future equity that may or may not exist. I think it's an interesting subject because a lot of people are like, you know, and, and if we learn anything from like Yahoo, I, I knew someone from the early days in Yahoo and they were going to be gazillionaires, right? And and nothing in life is a guarantee. Yeah, I worked at Groupon for a year. Tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, but it shouldn't be about necessarily where you're going to end up. It shouldn't be about how much this stock option or equity is going to end up being. It should be about the journey. And I think when it comes to hiring, the most important thing that you can put the, the emphasis and the value on is hiring people that other people will want to come into work and solve for things together. That is part of the journey. 
the emotional satisfaction you got from what it was that you came in every single day, that time you spent away from your family or time you spent away doing anything else you could have been doing. You know, if you're going to come into work every single day, you want the journey to be worthwhile. And a lot of that has to do with the type of people that you choose to let into your organization. Because at the end of the day, regardless of the success and the mission and how cool everything is, people will accept your job offer because of who they get to work with and they will stay because of who they get to work with. There's a subtext running throughout um, that I kind of just wanted to bring to the fore, which is um, talking about clarity of policies and, um, you know, everything from our values to compensation to how you develop to performance, promotion, all of those things. I think that there's there's a wonderful side effect of clarity, which is actually it has a big in- impact on inclusivity. And the reason why I say that is um, because implicit policies tend to benefit insiders, those who are in the know. Um, when you make all your policies very clear and explicit, then they're available to everybody on an equal basis. So, you know, just listening to us talk about clarity in a couple different ways, I wanted to, you know, just mention that that's, that's actually one of the foundations of a very inclusive place, which is the foundation of a very diverse place. It also sets really clear expectations of how someone's going to contribute to your organization. How are they going to be successful or impact the work that you want to do um, is all based on how clear you are about what you're expecting out of them and what you're expecting to also deliver to them. So that's, I, I love that you called it out because it, it has been a theme, underlining theme, all of this conversation. But yeah, I think in order to keep people, they need to know what they expect uh, or what you're expecting from them and if they're actually contributing to that. It's an enabler. Yeah. It's an enabler. You're going to deal, especially if you're early stage, you're going to deal with a ton of ambiguity. That's the wrong type of ambiguity to have. Yeah. Expectations, that clarity should be there. So you enable people to move as quickly as possible and deal with all the other ambiguity that you're going to have to spend time with. Because the other misconception is you hire really great people and you're clear about the mission, but you're not really clear about how they're going to achieve the mission or how they're going to impact the mission um, or the work that you need to have done is that you have a lot of really great, talented people that are maybe not doing exactly what you need them to do because you weren't clear about what it takes to do that or you weren't clear about what you expect from that person. And then both parties are unhappy. They feel unsatisfied in their job because they feel like they can't contribute to the work that you wanted to do in the first place or what they hired you to do. And they, they're not sure if they're even successful um, because there's no way to judge that because you weren't clear on your expectations. And then the employer is not happy because they're not getting the end product that they had hoped for. So ambiguity is just not helpful there. Just wanted to add in that point. Okay, one, more, one more question. What resources do you guys have for global companies that are really mission-driven something? Like, we are working with recruiters, and our salary is lower than market or social tech startup, and they are just telling us, like, there's no one out there. And we have a team. So, like, there are people out there, but they're like go to answers like this is like we can go to like hey Sat, we can't like we get me to do this more time. So I guess I'm having trouble like working yeah, how do you, so the question is how do you find resources that are gonna be mission aligned? Mm-hmm. I think I mean the recruiter the recruiter has different incentives than you do, right? Mm-hmm. And and if your salary is under market level, then the recruiters doesn't have a tremendous incentive to bring people to you. So I would start there and, and maybe think about the recruiters that you're using. 
Um, but that's probably a separate uh, answer to the question. Yeah, I mean, there's so many events specifically in Chicago, but nationwide that are targeting um, people who are mission oriented. It doesn't necessarily have to be that it's a mission oriented organization that is exactly like your mission, but there are a ton of groups out there that are like black women in engineering or um, lesbians in tech or there's Tech Ladies, which is an organization that started, I think, two years ago under the assumption that it was women who wanted to hire women so that women felt more comfortable in an engineering team or on an engineering team. And it's specifically around hiring. So it's sending out suggestions of here are companies that are hiring that would be really good for you. Um, there are ones for people from all different backgrounds. And if you look on Meetup, or if you look on um, Built in Chicago, and uh, what are the other sites here? There's, I mean, there's so many that what we used to do when I worked at Dev Bootcamp was we would sponsor those in our space, or we would sponsor the food, or we would sponsor um, the the panel, or we would have someone go speak on the panel um, to put us in front of those people that we wanted to hire. That's probably your best route other than recruiters because... Like Noel said, they have their own incentives, and if they can send someone to a higher-paying job, they make more money. So um, I want to touch on the events piece because I think experiential-type initiatives are really powerful, especially if you have a mission-based company. Invite them to your home. I think there's the tactic of like going to a bunch of events, and I think there's actually inviting people to come see your story firsthand and come meet the human beings that they would have an opportunity to work with. It really helps with sort of visualizing themselves working here, right? If you have a partner, an external partner who is sending messages about a name and that name is part of a hundred names that they're receiving in their LinkedIn, what is the differentiator, right? And the differentiators are actually the humans. So I think if, if you're going to go the events route, I would err on the side of going to meetup.com and actually inviting as many relevant groups to come host their event at your home. And they're really happy to partner with you because they like showing their members a bunch of different environments and spaces. It, it's a value add for them. So I think the, the right partnerships are, um, are very important. When I hear about a recruiting agency or just recruiting efforts not being able to deliver on something, I also put onus on the company as well. And I think I'd mentioned this before, where are you looking for the right thing? Would you be better off saying, here are a list of our non-negotiables, and here's what we're willing to give up on? If we can't pay more than everybody else, right, we have to be willing to give up on something on our end. And that might be an individual who maybe doesn't have the exact one-to-one -one experience, but again, is a really gifted problem solver and will be able to pick up that skill in the job. It, it's going to be different for everyone, but I think there also has to be a good hard look to whether you're setting yourself up for success and actually finding something that is realistically attainable for the limitations that you have. And then going back to good partners and saying, hey, listen, here's, here's the, the new set of requirements, right? To make it easier on your end to help us find what we need. May I ask the current size of your team? Of the engineering team? Sure. The engineering team is six people. Uh -huh. Okay. I think, you know, at, at that scale, if you're not able to find an aligned recruiter, it's still early days for this, but there are a couple of, uh, I guess you could call them artificial intelligence uh, solutions that, you know, can actually 
bring you a list of candidates. Now they, you can expect that the first round are, are not going to be great and that you'll help refine the training set basically for, for these, uh, the robots. But at about the tenth of a price of a single recruit, you can run, you know, one of these for about three months. And get a lot of interesting profiles that you never would have found. Um, most of them are based off of LinkedIn. I can mention a few. They're like hired, happy, and vetery. Um, you know, and human predictions. And and human predictions <laughs> that you, can help you can help at least bring in a little bit more aligned sets of resumes. And you're still going to have to filter. You're still going to have to do the the work of of finding and interviewing. And you know, it's it's a big investment, but at least Getting people in the door isn't doesn't come with this like giant price tag and with um, maybe misaligned uh, interests. So I forgot to mention your best resource is already in house, and it's those six engineers. If you have a engaged and motivated workforce, they should be your partner in this. Um, when we were building the the team at Context Media at what it was called at the time. I literally sat down with everyone and said, who is the best person that you've ever worked with? Or who are the best people that you know of? And they're like, Liz, they're not looking. I'm like, I didn't ask you that. I want to know who they are. And I want to then do my job to figure out how I can connect with them and tell them our story. Because I was really confident that if I had an opportunity to either tell them the story myself or get them a coffee with our VP of engineering, right? that person would be a little bit more open to possibly converting to a better opportunity because no one in engineering needs a job right now, but everyone is open to an opportunity that they can feel more connected with. Yeah, that's a long game. <laughs> you got it. You got to get we aggressive. Have six, we have people we've recruited for, you know, six years. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah. And it is, I think it's so cheesy to say relationships, you know, you should never recruit someone with the intention of placing them then and now. You have to build really great relationships with people. You have to figure out how you can help them, right? And putting that out there creates a community of people that remember you and would want to then return a help that you gave them with a referral or advice or other types of help. And uh, to, to Mark's point, it's recruiting is a long game. There are people that you continue to just know and have a great uh, rapport with, because the reality is every single thing in the world, including jobs, has a cycle. There's a cycle in a, in a company's history where you can't touch anyone. They would never take a phone call. And then something changes. They get bought. They lose funding. You know, something happens that they're now in a position to be open. And if you've maintained that network, if you maintain those relationships, you're going to be there at the moment that that happens and have an opportunity to grab them before someone else does. A really good example of that, actually, is uh, there's a really well-known CTO in Chicago, actually, um, who's known in the startup industry, uh, Fred Lee, who he was not looking and was not interested in Granger, who is a large company that would not typically be interesting to him. They sought him out, and they were recruiting him for, I think, over eight months. He wasn't interested in going, but they kept checking in. And they had every single executive on their team check in with him and invite him to the office, invite him to dinner, invite him to lunch. And over time, they eventually got to a point where he was interested. Had they not taken that long game approach, 
he, he said he probably wouldn't have gone there, but they showed that they were interested in him. They were interested in taking the time and the patience to recruit him and bring him on board. And then what that actually did for them too, not only did they get Fred Lee, they also got his network and they got his brand. They got the respect that a lot of developers have for him to then follow him there. So the long game approach is huge and being in touch and staying in relationship with those people even if they're not interested in leaving at that time, can make all the difference in your organization. Well, I think that more or less puts us at time, unless somebody has a question, one more question. All right, thank you. Great. Thank you, thank you guys for being, thank, thank you for coming. Thank you to the panelists. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and you can find TableXI at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdonright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everybody from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We still have developer positions open on our website as I record this. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.